Welcome back to the Physicians Helping Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Mudge Riley. I changed careers back in the early 2000s and I found it very difficult. So I made it my mission at that point to help other physicians who were looking to figure out a career transition or what to do to diversify their career with a side gig or multiple different small careers. Today, we have with us a really neat guest who's going to talk about locum tenens. His name is Dr. Andrew Wilner. Hi, Dr. Wilner. Hi, Michelle. I'm so glad you're here with us today. You've got a lot of great things to talk about, and one of those being your new book that's out, which is not the first book that you've ever written, by the way. So we want to hear about all of that. But first, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your education? Well, sure. Uh, it's a little bit of a long story, but uh, even, well, number one, I, I know you talk to a lot of guests about non-clinical careers, and I've always had a non-clinical career, which was uh, writing. You know, ever since even uh, high school, I wrote plays and poetry and short stories. And so that's something I've tried to continue throughout my career. So even in uh, college, I knew I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to go to medical school. And uh, then I graduated from uh, Brown Medical School. Mm -hmm. And in those days, internal medicine seemed to be the right thing to do. So I did a uh, internship in internal medicine at the Long Beach Veterans Hospital in California. Wow, that's a different, and, that's a trek from Brown, right? Yes, it is. And that's actually a long story how I, <laughs> how I got there. Uh, we, <laughs> we could do that one uh, next time. But uh, I decided to put my uh, writing on hold because an internship well, it's very demanding today, and in those days, it was uh, really demanding. I think I had uh, my first day off from after July 1 was Christmas Day. Wow. Go to the hospital, and I remember sleeping on Christmas Day. Um, and I said, you know, it's just too much to try and write and be a successful intern. And as my internship uh, drew to a close, I realized that I didn't, I didn't know where I was going with my medical training. I liked, I liked everything. You know, an internship, you do a month of ICU, pulmonary, renal, GI, cardiology. Right. And it was all, you know, it was all great. And it was all kind of the same to me. And I didn't really have a focus like, oh, I really want to, you know, finish and go out and do X didn't know what X was. And I was also very frustrated because I hadn't been able to write for a year. So I went to my program director and I said, hey, can I, can I take a year off? You know, that was in the days when people used to take a year off from college and it was kind of a big deal. So I said, you know, I want to take a year. I want to write a book and I'll come back. He said, that's fine. Wow. So, uh, no problem. I said, great. So there was a local ER that a lot of the guys used to uh, moonlight. And I went over there and I said, can I work here for a while? And they said, sure. You know, things were a lot easier those days. You didn't have to be board certified in, in emergency medicine to work in an ER. You, you just had to have a medical degree and, and show up. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I was uh, woefully unprepared 
after doing one year of internship in the VA, I really drew very heavily on my medical school training, and I had a bag of books with me <laughs> every time I went. Wow. Uh, delivered babies and treated people in car accidents and sutured and all kinds of things. And, but this was really my first experience with uh, locum tenens. It was an opportunity to do something temporary, earn, earn a living. And I wrote a book that year. I worked about 30 hours a week, usually the overnight shifts. So I think it was three overnight shifts, 36 hours. And then I had the rest of the time to myself. And uh, what I learned that year was very special because I learned I liked the neurology cases. And that I hadn't discovered in my internship. You know, every now and then somebody would come in with a double vision or a numbness and a neurologist might come in to do a consult. And I just thought that was fascinating. It was sort of like a magician. He had all these uh, fancy ways of examining the patient that I had never really appreciated before. And I thought that was very cool. So that kind of sat with me. I went back to my program director at the end of the year and I said, okay, I'm ready to start. And he said, oh, Dr. Wilner, he said, we have a problem. We don't have any room for you. I, I said, what, excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? He said, well, for the first time in the history of the Long Beach VA, all of the interns stayed. He said, there's always a dropout. So there's always room in the second year. But this year, everybody stayed. I said, are you kidding me? What am I supposed to do? <laughs> right. He said, I don't know. You know, uh, it was like, whoa, that was my first sort of encounter with the system, you know, not really being uh, doctor friendly. And uh, it was like, well, you know, no room, too bad for you. So I scrambled around and it turns out that at Los Angeles County Hospital, which is a huge uh, training uh, center, in those days, I think there were a hundred medical interns. They always had people that dropped out because it was a very, uh, very tough internship with lots of sick patients and uh, really demanding on-call responsibilities. So anyway, they took me. So I did two years in internal medicine there. And while I was there, I went up to Montreal to visit a friend who was at McGill. When I was back at Brown as a medical student, I had a resident who went to McGill to become a pediatric neurologist. And she was the smartest doctor that I had ever met. And she wrote me and said that McGill was great and I ought to apply for neurology. Well, McGill didn't participate in the match and they only took one American a year. And it seemed like a real long shot. So I figured, why not? So I went up there, I visited her, I, I made an application, I had an interview. And I went back to LA County where I promptly uh, forgot about the whole thing. <laughs> uh, about a year later, I got a phone call from some guy who said he was the residency uh, program director at McGill and I was accepted to the program. Wow. It was like, I thought it was a joke, like one of those calls, you know, this is the president of the United States and it turns out it really is. So yeah, so I was accepted and, uh, but they said, we don't want you for two years from now. And I said, well, that's fine. I'll finish my internal medicine training, which was a total of three years, take the boards and I'll go up there. So I did that. 
I went up and, and then I went to McGill. I did three years of neurology residency and uh, then a fellowship in epilepsy. So I was board certified in two specialties, internal medicine, neurology, and then I took the boards in electrophysiology and passed those. And then I went off into private practice as a neurologist slash epilepsy specialist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So by the time you were done, you'd already had a lot of good real life experience, it sounds like, and working not only kind of different and crazy uh, situations, but also doing some actual locums work that you really didn't call locums work at the time, right? Exactly. I never really thought of it that way. It was just a way to kind of, you know, it was work-life balance before they even invented it, Um, you know, before they invented the term. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Was it hard to go back to residency after doing work? Uh, No, I don't remember that being difficult uh, at all. I think it was kind of a relief because in the ER, I was just on my own and uh, I would, I remember when I started, a patient would come in with, I don't know, a cough or a cold or a broken arm or something. And I, I had the Washington manual for everything, you know, yeah. Washington manual for orthopedics, for ophthalmology, for this, for that. And I would say to them, do you, do you have a local doctor? And they go, oh yeah, it's Dr. So-and-so. So I said, well, what's their number? So I would, almost every case in the beginning, I would call the local doctor and I'd say, you know, your patient's here with this or that. What do you think I ought to do? (laughs) Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah. You know, towards the end of the year, I got a little more uh, confident, uh, but I I would definitely not recommend working in the ER after one year of internship. (laughs) Especially Uh, now. Yeah. With all the regulations. Yeah. And, uh, but it went pretty well. I learned a lot. It was fun. And uh, again, it was the neurology cases that really uh, sort of stood out in my mind uh, that, that made it fun. And, and uh, back in residency, you know, then I could sort of focus a little bit. I remember watching the neurologists a little more closely when they consulted on my internal medicine patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just great. I like being in a teaching center. And so, you know, in, in those days, we learned from uh, the resident above you, you know, it was very hierarchical. Intern learned from the resident, the resident learned from the PG3, the PG learned from the PG4 and the PG4 learned from the fellow. Mm-hmm. You know, the faculty only showed up a couple times a week, you know, kind of reluctantly to do uh, very brief rounds and then go back to their, you know, very important uh, research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was very uh, sort of community oriented and, you know, just learning a lot. Nobody really resented the hours because uh, we uh, were always uh, learning and the patients were very appreciative, you know, because we were we were all they had. Yeah. So, so then talk about, you, you start this private practice and, you know, you had it all, right? You had a book done, you had lots of experience, you had a bunch of residencies under your belt, you were boarded. I mean, life is good. So how did you, and why did you make that transition from private practice back to locums? Yeah, so I think it's not something I would have predicted. You know, when you start private practice, you've just done your fellowship. And I had actually trained in Canada for my last four years. So I really didn't understand the American system, you know, of 
uh, of, of running a practice and earning money. I was in a group and our, my mission was to develop an epilepsy program. And so there was a neurosurgeon in town and we actually developed a nationally recognized uh, epilepsy uh, surgery program. Wow. And so that kept me pretty busy for the first five years, you know, becoming known in the community as an expert, uh, publishing papers, uh, doing EEG video monitoring. That's what I did for the most part, as well as go into the operating room and uh, cortical mapping. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I realized I was more academic than a lot of my colleagues, and I wanted to become even more academic. I also, again, wanted to write. Uh, and I talked to my partners about taking like half a day off a week, and I, they eventually allowed me to do that, but at great uh, financial cost. You know, somehow taking 10% of the time off ended up with like a 25% salary cut. Mm -hmm. And I since discovered that that is often the case. Uh, it is very hard not to work full time in a group unless there are other people, unless it's set up that way, you know, where other people are working sort of partial uh, amounts of time when everybody's sort of working full time and you're the one who wants to take some time off, at least in my experience, they were not sympathetic at all to my sort of need to pursue my other uh, interests. Mm -hmm. So then I thought maybe I should really be in an academic program, you know, as a clinical assistant professor or something, and I'd have fellows and I could publish more papers and do more monitoring and have sort of more protected time. Mm -hmm. That was my idea. And I also, I, that I, I was at the Carolinas Epilepsy Center in Charlotte, and I'm originally from Rhode Island. And so there was their opportunity to move back to Rhode Island and go back to Brown. Oh, Wow. And I thought, well, this is really exciting. And they uh, told me they wanted to uh, develop an epilepsy program, just like the one I had developed. And it all seemed kind of uh, perfect to me. Long story short, I took the job and it wasn't perfect. <laughs> and uh, after a year, I left. Wow. Uh, in that uh, they didn't have the support. They we really were not of the same mind. Our quality metrics were different. It was like, it was not what I had hoped for. So I left. And then I found that I was where I wanted to live in Rhode Island. I had a nice condo by the ocean mm -hmm. and my family's not far, but I had no job. <laughs> <laughs> a key piece to all of this, yes. right? <laughs> and it was uh, a key piece. And so I thought, well, maybe I should go back to Charlotte and do what I was doing. There really wasn't any problem there. And, you know, my partners were not happy that I left. Mm -hmm. And I had literally thousands of epilepsy patients that I was following. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really want to do that. I, you know, I'd left for a reason. Mm -hmm. And then I looked for other epilepsy jobs. And there were several, but they were all over the place. They were in Texas. They were in California. It was like, that's not what I want to do. I want to be here. But Rhode Island's a pretty small place. And uh, so there was no place to go. So I was really kind of uh, didn't know what to do. So I had been interviewed a number of times, you know, at conferences by uh, reporters about my poster, you know, these from from the throwaway magazines, you know, Neurology Times, Neurology Reviews, CNS News, Medscape, Sure. They, all those people, they'd come up and talk to me. It was kind of fun. 
And I was a writer, so I thought, you know, maybe I could do that. So I called up one of the magazines and I said, you know, so I told them the story. They said, okay, go to this conference, you know, and write in half a dozen articles. So I did it. And it worked. It was like, oh, this is fun. I'm learning a lot. I'm interviewing these uh, thought leaders. You know, I always love to ask questions. So here it's like, they have to answer my question. <laughs> <laughs> they have to. <laughs> you know, yeah. Otherwise, they're going to look bad in my articles. So uh, I traveled all over the world for international conferences. And at the end of the year, I had made enough money to uh, get by. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, maybe I'll do that another year. So I did it the next year. and I doubled my income the next year. Wow. And this, you're not practicing at all at this point, right? I'm not practicing at all. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, I'll keep doing it. So I doubled my income again the next year. Wow. And, and then it pretty much plateaued. I, you know, I, I'm very efficient and hardworking and, you know, but you can only type so fast. So I, I kind of hit a plateau, but I was doing almost as well as I was before as a physician. And I also had total discretion on my uh, schedule. Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't on call. I didn't have to go to meetings. You know, I could just do go as I pleased. Mm -hmm. Of course, I had deadlines. You know, when I went to a conference, it was uh, as soon as I came back, it was, uh, you know, start typing and the laundry would have to wait. You know, you had to really uh, focus, but it was fun. So I actually did that for 10 years. Really? Uh, consulting. Wow. Uh, I did some speaking and I did some medical mission work, but I didn't do any formal uh, clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, I was an epilepsy specialist and I would speak about the drug, some of which I had helped develop. But as, as time went on, I realized I was kind of drifting off into sort of irrelevancy because it was 10 years since I had, you know, been in the trenches. Sure. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to keep, I can't really keep speaking about what's new in epilepsy when the last time I treated a patient was 10 years ago. Even though I read about it every day and I talked to the thought leaders at conferences, I mean, I was really up to speed. But not hands-on. <clears throat> so that's when I decided I needed to go back. And I went back as a community neurologist, as a one of the as the first neuro hospitalist that they ever had, seven days on, seven days off, in a 300-bed hospital in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And what was really cool was computers. I discovered computers because when I left 10 years before, we didn't have computers in the hospital, you know, every three inches, there wasn't another screen to check your labs and check your x-rays. You know, I used to go to radiology. Oh, so sure. Yeah. It was this big, it was like, wow, it was sort of like stepping into the future. So that was kind of fun. And of course the patients were all the same, not, not a whole lot had changed in uh, treatment. So it took about a day to get up to speed. And then I realized that this uh, seven days on, seven days off thing worked well for me. So after a year there, I said, you know, I could do more writing if I worked locum tenens. So then I started doing like three months here, three months there. And that was about when they in invented also the internet. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I realized I could write from anywhere. 
So suddenly I said, you know, because I would write at whatever conference I went, I'd be sitting in England, you know, in a, in a cubicle writing, I'd be in the airplane writing. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, I, I like the scuba dive. Maybe I should go to the Philippines. Nice. To the Philippines. And I said, you know, I got an apartment and I set up my computer and I got internet and I was writing articles for magazines. Sure, <laughs> sure. And, and were you doing locums there as well? Well, <clears throat> medic, I did medical mission work. Uh, I very see. hard to practice in the Philippines uh, and get paid legally. Okay. <laughs> or a uh, foreigner, what they call a foreigner. Uh, so uh, I, what I would do is I, would, I kept my apartment there and I'd come back to the U.S. and do an intensive three or four month stint in locums in South Dakota or Minnesota mm -hmm. or south of Boston, all over the place, and then fly back to the Philippines. So it was, it was really cool. Wow, that is a great life. So uh, tell us about this new book that's out and maybe give us a little bit of a path from your other books because you have what, four books now total? Four books, sure. So okay. the first two books were about epilepsy. Remember, I was an epilepsy specialist in Charlotte. I would see epilepsy patients only all day long in the office and then go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So I thought, you know, and again, this is pre-internet. So there wasn't, you know, Dr. Google wasn't available. Mm -hmm. So patients would ask, what is epilepsy? How long do I have to take my medications? What's an EEG? What's an MRI? What should I be in a clinical trial? What's this vagus nerve stimulator? So the first book is Epilepsy, 199 Answers. It was really a service to my uh, patients um, because I wanted to get them up to the next level. You know, if you spend your 15 minutes with the patient explaining, you know, why they have to take their medicine three times a day, you really can't get to their next question. Sure. So I thought, you know, this is a sort of foundation for basic uh, education. Mm -hmm. So then the next book was about clinical decision-making in epilepsy, because I realized I would get these referrals of patients that had been so mismanaged, <laughs> I mean, by their primary care doctors or just not managed at all. You know, it's like, oh, do you have seizures? Yep. I've had them three times a week for the last 20 years. It's like, well, what are you taking? Dilantin. It's like, well, how long have you been taking Dilantin? 20 years. It's like, well, how come nobody ever tried anything else? Right. You know? <clears throat> so I wrote a book for physicians on how to manage epilepsy, not, not telling them what to do, but sort of presenting a scenario and saying, these are your options, mm -hmm. you know, but, but not doing anything isn't the right thing. You got to move forward. You got to try this. You got to try that. You got to move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, so then the next book, I started writing a column, a blog. Remember blogs? Blogs were a new thing. Oh, wow. So I yeah. started writing a blog for Medscape about neurology and society. You know, there'd be an article in the news of a new vaccine or a new surgical treatment or something, uh, aluminum and Alzheimer's disease. And sometimes these things were real breakthroughs and sometimes they were just nonsense. Mm -hmm. So I started using them as kind of a platform to make some informed commentary. And uh, I wrote these uh, once a week. So it was a big job. You know, I'd find a topic, I'd research it for a couple days. And the book's title is Bullets and Brains. 
which refers to the first story about Gabriel Giffords. Remember, Gabriel Giffords was the Arizona congresswoman who was shot. Right, and, yeah. Uh, the story, as a journalist, I would hear the story on the news, it was carried by all the major news stations, was the wrong story. They talked about how she got to the hospital and was in the operating room within 38 minutes and a world famous neurosurgeon was gonna be there and help her. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, that's great. But the real story is she was shot in the head and she has brain damage. Mm -hmm. And we don't do anything for that. You know, neurosurgeons do the same thing we did in the Civil War. You know, they just stop the bleeding. Now we have some antibiotics. They pour some antibiotics into the wound and take out the little bits of bone and metal and uh, pray. Wow. This is a disaster. That's the real story is that this woman was shot in the brain and we don't have anything to offer her. And she's going to lose her job and she might lose her marriage. And this is a real catastrophe. Mm -hmm. That's the real story. Mm -hmm. And that the brain is vulnerable and delicate and you can't be banging it around. And uh, sure enough, Gabriel Giffords resigned a year later. She did make a miraculous recovery, but even so she can barely speak. She's paralyzed on one side. You know, it, uh, this was a very talented, uh, special, you know, woman who, whose life was radically altered by this uh, bullet. Mm -hmm. So, Part of my mission in writing these uh, blogs was to sort of interpret what happened the way I see it and get the, the real message. I wrote a lot about boxing before CTE was, you know, chronic traumatic encephalopathy was really uh, a story. Just sure. at the beginning of that. Uh, I even took a boxing lesson myself just to see oh. what it was uh, all about. And, nice. Uh, yeah, it's it very, very interesting because boxing is very big in the Philippines. So, uh, you know, Manny Pacquiao is like the greatest boxer, you know, one of the greatest boxers that ever lived. And he's a national hero there. And he's actually in, in politics over there now. So uh, I learned a lot. So that that's Bullets and Brains, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, over 100 essays, uh, which are pretty interesting, I think. Yeah. But now... The best for last, your most, your latest book. Talk about the Locum's book. Right. So the Locum's book. So all of a sudden, you know, I was looking to write another book and a, a real tenet, if you're a writer, is you got to write something you know about, right? Sure. And, and I was thinking, well, what do I know about? And I was like, because I was always telling these stories about my Locum's experiences, you know, seeing patients and you know, having to take urine tests and going to uh, the police, uh, you know, station to get fingerprinted and filling out forms and flying for interviews. And, and I thought, you know, I know a lot about the process and I've had some interesting experiences. Maybe I want to write about that. Well, that was three years ago. I had that idea and it, it took a long time to put it together. And it also dawned on me that as fascinating as my own personal experiences were, it would be really more interesting to get those of other locums physicians. <clears throat> so yeah. I made it a point to interview about a dozen other locums doctors and ask them what was, you know, their best experiences, their worst experiences, their advice to new locums uh, physicians. 
And uh, the book became a, a real uh, in-depth project. There are no other books like it. There's no full-length book on locums for any physician who wants to try it, which I found fascinating because a recent uh, uh, survey by Staff Care, one of the locums companies, says that 11.6% of physicians are considering locums. Yeah. And locums has really grown because of all the changes in medicine. Now, physicians are more mobile. Uh, they tend not to own their practices. They want work-life balance. And of course, for me, locums was a fa fantastic discovery. I could work and work 100% of my energy, which is what I like to do, but then stop and then do 100% of the other things I like to do. So uh, by separating it for me, this is when I work, this is when I play, this is when I write. That was really uh, wonderful for me. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting how many physicians are looking for a very non-traditional way to work now, whether it's non-clinical work or just a different situation where they can practice clinically, but also get to do the things that they want to do in life and have that work-life balance and get a little bit of autonomy and control back. So, um, I, I was reading in one of your articles about one of the things that stands out in your mind about locums is that what you get is a lack of administrative burdens and meetings and all of these things that contribute to helping a physician kind of lose control over their time and what they're doing and, and really just not have any time left over for themselves or their family. Is that really what you find is so special about locums? I mean, among other things. Oh, absolutely. I remember in my private practice job, we had endless meetings, you know, breakfast meeting, lunch meeting, dinner meetings, weekend retreats to better run the business. But uh, none of the guys really knew how to run a business. And it was, it was like all a waste of time. When you do locums, you just show up. And all they want from you is to take care of the patients because they had a doctor who's on maternity leave or who retired or died or quit. And they've got patients scheduled, you know, in clinic or they're coming into the hospital and there's nobody to take care of them. They're in a desperate straits. They don't want you to help them manage the hospital or improve things or create a better workflow or improve their computer. They don't care. They just want you to take care of the patients. And it's like, this is great. That's what I want to do. So you just show up, you take care of the patients, you do your charting, you know, so it's done. You signed your notes. And they think you're wonderful. The patients <laughs> think you're wonderful. Everybody thinks you're wonderful. And all you have to do is what you want to do, which is take care of the patients. And that's been true everywhere that I've been, in South Dakota, in Minnesota, in Boston, in uh, Arizona. I was at the Mayo Clinic Phoenix as a locums physician. It was wow. fantastic. I was teaching. I was seeing patients. <laughs> I was even earning more money than the faculty was, than, than if I was permanent because of the way locums was structured. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I hear that, which is fascinating. I mean, if you think about the big picture here, it's what we became doctors to do, which is take care of patients, make a decent amount of money so that we can live, have you know that appreciation from others for the care that we provide, because that's just, I mean definitely not something that has to happen, but nice to have that happen, right? So gosh, it sounds like really the perfect way to be a doctor again. 
I had one physician say that uh, in the book who I interviewed, he said, you know, that locum tenens is the only place left in America where physicians can, can practice the way they were meant to practice. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. And I want to I wanna make one comment about, you know, there's so many physicians that are being driven to non-clinical careers. And I think non-clinical careers are great if that's what the physician, you know, really wants to do. You know, there are some guys that just love administration. You know, they, they want to sort of help manage, you know, the world and the way the patient flow and things like that. And I think that's fantastic. But, you know, I think there are a lot of other physicians that are just looking to get out and just looking for some way to earn a living as a physician, but that taking care of patients has become too burdensome. You know, and I think, I, I think that's really unfortunate. And I, I think locums is a potential solution for them that they should really look at, you know, before they get out. I did mention earlier that I was out for 10 years. And what I didn't say, it is very, very difficult to get back. Uh, in my case, not because of skills or becoming rusty, but because of uh, rules and regulations. The way it is now is that if you are not seeing patients for more than two years, malpractice companies will not insure you. Right. Yep. And if you're not insured by a malpractice company, you can't get a job. Yep. Yep. And, and I think even regulatory bodies are having trouble if you haven't seen a patient in making sure that you can renew your license and all that. Yep. It is very, oh, you can't get a license in Florida unless you've seen patients in two of the last four years. Mm -hmm. So even if you've kept up your CMEs and you've done all that, which I had, it doesn't matter. So this is just, and and this is another role for locums that I mentioned in the book. Suppose you want a non-clinical career. All you have to do is work locums one or two weeks a year and it resets the clock. So if you ever want to go back to, full-time, or if you just want to keep your hand in it, you can. But if you walk away for three years because you want to sail around the world or raise three children, there are, I know there are obstetrician gynecologists you know, who've raised a family and then they come back, okay, I want to go to practice, and they cannot. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really, really unfortunate. And I think locums is a way to, to keep your clinical, pra- your clinical career alive uh, if you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I do have people that come to me and even those that have worked with me in the past that are struggling with that. They haven't practiced for over two years. In some cases, it's been 10 years or more. And it's not because they got in trouble or they did something bad or anything. It's because maybe they did have a second career or they needed to raise a family or take care of a sick parent or they themselves had a debilitating illness. Um, and now they're recovered and they want to go back and, and that's their only skill and they cannot get back to their livelihood. So I am so glad you mentioned that. There are probably some people listening right now who might fall into that and um, we can recommend your book to them. So how can they find you and how can they find your book? Best place is uh, my website, andrewwilner.com. It's one word, andrewwilner.com. And there are links there to uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. 
And I think there's a discount if they buy direct from the publisher. There's a link there too. And uh, anything else they want to find out about me is at <laughs> andrewwellner.com. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and your other books are on that site as well, I see. So um, I was only aware of your first book, The Locum Life, where I love the cover too, the, the doctor who comes in in a parachute and everyone's so happy to see him again. Um, it, <laughs> nice metaphor. I like it a lot. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah. Did you do that drawing? I did the design and I actually hired an artist who I met while on Locum's assignment. And I told her, this is what I want. And we went through about a dozen different versions before we finally got what I wanted. And that's exactly the concept I had in mind. So I'm, I'm really glad you appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone will like it. Uh, so if nothing else, go to your website to check out that cover. It's neat. Um, all right. Well, we're coming to the end of our time together. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? And, and know that I will include all of your links and everything in, um, on the podcast on the website. So you don't have to repeat that again, but any words of wisdom? <laughs> well, that's a tall order. I, <laughs> I, I, I would just say that physicians really uh, should not underestimate their potential to work in different areas and to succeed in clinicians, as clinicians, even with all the current bureaucracy and locums, they should explore locums if they're a little frustrated in their current position because it can really open up a whole world for them and, and even lead to a, a better permanent position. We didn't get a chance to talk about that, but that's actually how it worked for me. So locums is a wonderful tool so uh, don't be afraid of it. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and people like you talking about it, demystifying it, answering people's questions. I mean, I would say if anyone's interested at all in locums to get your book and check it out, learn a little bit more and kind of figure out, is this right for me or not, um, before even taking an assignment. I, I'm sure you give nice resources and everything like that in the book. So thank you for being on today. Uh, thanks, Michelle. It was really fun. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of another podcast. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Check out Dr. Wilner's website and his books, and we'll see you in the next episode.